are phrases and idioms from a lot of different sources in English, and they tend to just arise up out of comfort, out of familiarity, out of things that we're just used to seeing. So many of our idioms like this do not, in fact, have literal application at first. Coming up on Word Matters, the phrase throw someone under the bus, and the difference between doing a 180 and doing a 360. I'm Emily Brewster, and Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. On each episode, Merriam-Webster editors Neil Servan, Amon Shea, Peter Sokolowski, and I explore some aspect of the English language from the dictionary's vantage point. Throwing someone under the bus is about criticizing, blaming, or punishing someone, especially when you're trying to avoid blame or gain an advantage. The phrase evokes quite an image, but where did it come from anyway? And why a bus? Here's Amon Shea on the development of this unsavory but often applied idiom. One of the peculiarities of English language is that words and idioms, very often we are presented with colorful explanations of where they came from. And typically, it's a kind of a rule that if somebody gives you an etymology, the origin story of a word, and it sounds really interesting, it's almost certainly not true. <laughs> you know, all the things about posh meaning port outward, whatever the hell it is. It's, they, <laughs> port not, out, starboard home. Right, right, right. right. Those, they just don't hold water, so to speak. And every once in a while, though, you do get one that kind of does have an interesting origin story. One of my favorites in a kind of grisly way is Deadline. And our earliest evidence for this is from diaries of prisoners in the Civil War, and they refer to the deadline as, in a prison camp, the line past which, if you walked, you would be shot. You go past that line, you are dead. And there's a Robert Ransom diary entry from 1863, the ditch serves as a deadline, and no prisoners must go near the ditch. And it's a very clear literal meaning to that line. And that's kind of charming in an unfortunate sort of way. But it's nice that sometimes the <laughs> It's a weird term for, like, journalists and others to pick up. Right, They I need know. to get a job it, done. It, Let's it, immediately go to the prison yard. Right, <laughs> and it's, it's, it's a little overly <laughs> dramatic, isn't it? Well, it tells you how heavily those deadlines can weigh on a person. Right, mm. right. I don't want to get shot. But then, you know, we have other ones like another great one, an uh, idiom, is throw someone under the bus, which has become very, very popular in politics lately. Mm-hmm. And it's been around for several decades, but really in the last 10 or 12 years, throwing someone under the bus, which is kind of making somebody take the fall for you, so to speak. Now, the origins originally, was there a, an er person who was, in fact, squished under a bus? <laughs> Fortunately, that's not the case. It would make for a really great story if it were. But the evidence that we have, the term, oddly enough, since it becomes so popular in our political system and our political coverage of late, our earliest uses all come from British politicians. Beginning in about 1980, some still pin their hopes on the under-the-bus theory, which has Mr. Foote being forced by ill health to give way to Mr. Healy before the next election. So When was that? That was in 1980. That's hmm. pretty recent. It is pretty recent. The British seem to have a real affinity for the bus and idiom because somewhat earlier, uh, 1971, there was a quote from The Spectator in the London newspaper. There was an amusing little parlor game much favored by politicians. It is called Let's Kill the Leader. And when played by labor loyalists, it begins, supposing Harold Wilson were to go under a bus. And there are other uses in the 1970s. The two would be the top contenders for the leadership of Prime Minister Jim Callaghan were in the British phrase to fall under a bus. So we have go under a bus, fall under a bus, 
et cetera, et cetera. And as far as images of England, I often think of especially London. I picture the buses, That's right? True. The buses are kind of an archetypal the, symbol. The they are a symbol. Buses, yes. And yes. The, the politicians shoving people under them. Right. <laughs> exactly. There is a kind of violence to the image. This has become lexicalized to such a point that when I hear under the bus, he threw them under the bus. I don't actually think of the literal image, and it is pretty alarming. It would be a really kind of messy literalism. <laughs> and it's, it's interesting because so many of our idioms like this do not, in fact, have literal application at first. Dog days of summer is perhaps one of the best known examples that it has nothing to do with an actual furry dog. It refers to the dog star. Right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Kiss of death, which is an interesting one. You know, the something signifying the demise of something about to come is, I believe, a 19th century origin, but is in reference to the Bible, the Judas giving the kiss right. death to Jesus, right. etc. So these phrases tend to not have the deadline realism to their origin. What is interesting about throw under the bus, a lot of these phrases, kiss of death, comes from the Bible. You can actually trace it back pretty far. Throw someone under the bus, you're limited. You know from the beginning to the time when there were such a thing as motor coaches. Right. There's, <laughs> there's no earlier use of throw someone under the ox cart. Right. So it's kind of interesting how this came up with the imagery of buses. Obviously at a time when they could maybe go with some speed, because that's the whole point of throwing someone under them, that they would be hurt. The image obviously sticks with you of someone being trampled by a bus. Peter was saying that he doesn't even think of that image No, at I all. sure don't. I understand it. It's been lexicalized for me. It sticks with me. I don't know why. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't know if it has to do with maybe it was the double-decker buses. You know, why a bus and why not an ox car? Why not a train? Why did bus stick around as the idea of the thing coming over? Maybe it was because at the time the phrase was coined very common. Maybe it was a city thing. I don't know. I, I think that's possible. I think people were, in fact, often run over by buses as well. I, mean, I think you don't say run over by a sled. You go to what you know, which is people are, in fact, run over by buses sometimes. Ammon, do you know if there's any evidence of people being thrown under an omnibus? Not that I've seen. Because omnibus is where we get the word bus. So nobody corrects one to say, no, let's properly throw one under the omnibus. I think that's happened in Congress before, though, hasn't it? (laughs) Yes. You're listening to Word Matters. I'm Emily Brewster. We'll be back after the break with a detour to where idiom confronts geometry. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Clear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. I'm Peter Sokolowski. Join me every day for The Word of the Day, a brief look at the history and definition of one word, available at merriam-webster.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more podcasts from New England Public Media, visit the NEPM Podcast Hub at nepm.org. I'm Neil Servin. Do you have a question about the origin, history, or meaning of a word? Email us at wordmatters at m-w.com. 
podcast is called Word Matters, not Number Matters. But sometimes numbers get used as words, in which case those number matters are indeed word matters. And so it is with two numbers that are used to talk about changing direction, or ultimately not. Here's Neil Servan with the linguistic difference between doing a 180 and doing a 360. We get our phrases and idioms from a lot of different sources in English, and they tend to just arise up out of comfort, out of familiarity, out of things that we're just used to seeing. One example of an idiom that comes from mathematics and geometry is to do a 180. So to explain the geometrical aspect of this first, there are 360 degrees in a circle, 180 degrees in a half a circle. Angles are measured by degrees, you know, so we have 90 degrees in a right angle. It's like one quarter of the circle is a 90 degree angle. So a half circle essentially is 180 degrees. People have like visualized the circle when they talk about doing a 180. What it essentially means is they've turned around halfway. You're doing an about face, essentially. You're looking the other way that you were facing before. You're now going in the opposite direction. The opposite direction. So we use these degrees when we're talking about like snowboarders doing stunts. They'll do a 180. That's actually not that impressive. You can do a 720, and that's like two full rotations. We talk about hinges. We talk about inclines. We talk about basketball dunks, doing the rotation as they go up to the rim. When you complete a full rotation, that is 360 degrees then facing the same way that you started, compared to the 180, which you're facing the reverse. Idiomatically, we've come to use do a 180 to mean do an about face. And do an about face has its own idiom in English, means to change course, to do something that is essentially the opposite of what you were doing before. There's an example from G. Gordon Liddy's autobiography from 1980. I put the Pinto into a high-speed four-wheel drift across traffic and up into a dirt road leading into a cemetery, then did a 180 to see what was coming after me the other way. So it's obvious he's talking about changing his direction. The car spun around. He's now facing the way he was facing before. So when we talk about figurative 180s, we talk about changes in policy, changes in idea that is vastly different, almost completely the opposite of what was happening before. We have an example from Mike Pompeo quoted in New York Magazine. The Iranian regime has a choice. It can either do a 180-degree turn from its outlaw course of action and act like a normal country, or it can see its economy crumble. The use of geometry here kind of allows us to visualize things a little easier because we can see what circles look like. We see what shapes look like. When we say to do a 360, of course, we know we're talking to do a complete rotation. Idiomatically, if we say we're doing a 360, we're not changing anything. But... There is a habit that people have in English when they want to kind of enhance their language. And so what happens sometimes is people will use do a 360 to mean to do a 180. More so, is better. More is better. They're trying to double the idea of doing a 180, thinking it's going to somehow sound more impressive. But the problem is the result of doing a 360 means you're still where you are. The fact is that ninth grade geometry is a long way in the past for many speakers of English. Yeah. Yes, it is based on this shape and the number of degrees in a circle. Degrees in a circle. But that's not something that is really present in the minds of many speakers. You know, it's an idiom. You sure. can make it be whatever you want right. to be. What I think is interesting about that is in the evidence I've come across for this early use, and this is typical, it comes up in spoken language first. And of course, we have very little record of spoken right. language from right. decades ago. So what you sometimes see is, in this case, there's an article in the Chicago Tribune in 1975 in which a soap opera star is quoted. So it's the closest thing we get to actual colloquial speech. 
And she says, with a growing audience, viewers get to know the character. You can do a 360-degree switch if it's logical. And she's using 360-degree switch to mean a dramatic transformation. Dramatic transformation. When it actually, it just means she's spinning in a circle. But again, this is spoken English rather than written English. I watched a little soap operas back in the day. So I like to imagine this character (laughs) going from being a person who is having an affair with this person and then goes and does something else and has other relationships and then comes back and is back with that same first person it again. And then that would be a 360. <laughs> Language isn't math. I mean, that's sort of Neil's point, right, is that we can't apply the rules of math <laughs> to emphasis in language. And also a little knowledge can be dangerous. <laughs> dangerous only if there is actual danger in misusing an idiom. But I think of like children in a schoolyard trying to outdo each other. Kids probably wouldn't say they did a 180 figuratively. You can see some kid saying, well, yeah, well, I did a 360, and I changed course twice. And it's like they're trying to outdo them with the number, thinking that it's going to somehow mean a more enhanced version of doing a 180. It's a natural inclination. It's a natural inclination. And we see this not just with math language, but with other kinds of scientific language. My favorite one recently is epicenter. Yes. Mm. Which was initially defined as the part of the Earth's surface directly above the focus of an earthquake. And yet increasingly in recent years, we've entered a new sense for it because of this increasing use which has come up, which is just center. And people view the epi as meaning more so as center, but even the exact epi, center, yeah. epier, epicenter, like <laughs> really the center. Like you take the center and then you go to the center of the center and that's the epicenter. But it really didn't have that meaning initially. It's a wonderful reminder, I think, that language changes in many ways, some of them graceful, some of them rather, you know, kind of inelegant. And changing by mistake is just as valid a way of language change Mm -hmm. as any other. (laughs) This is what gives descriptivists bad name (laughs) in the sense that the easy narrative is if you make a mistake frequently enough as a language and it's observed and recorded, then that becomes the new meaning of a a word. So it should be clear, we are not saying if it feels good, do it, because that's not our purview. We are, however, saying if it feels good and you do it enough, we will take note of it and we we will make mention of of that change. But that emphatic addition of a syllable or something, epicenter, is more than a center somehow, which in the case of the coronavirus pandemic, for example, that word is used very frequently in that meaning alone, and many people used to correct that meaning. But there's others, like the word utmost, or the word extraordinary, extraordinary, or the word superannuated. They add syllables to add kind of this emphasis. And so we sometimes think that that's the way language works. Well, an epa as a prefix doesn't really have much content. Its semantic meaning is really lost to some degree on most speakers of English. It means on or at, right? So at the center, on the center. So epidemic is on the people. A pandemic is all of the people. Emily's point is that people don't understand what that epa really means. Of course So when they want to use epicenter instead of center, it's like they're needlessly, just for effect, adding these syllables just because it feels better or it sounds better or it sounds more greater attempt at accuracy than center gives, which isn't really possible. There's no way to really improve the centerness of the word center. We get that with a lot of other relatively obscure prefixes. Penultimate is yes. the classic yes. example. Penultimate. penultimate is like the ultimate, but even more ultimate. Yeah, that's right. Double <laughs> ultimate. The original sense of ultimate means the, the last last. Yeah. last item in a list or something. And then penultimate is the one that comes before that. So the word penultimate already exists with a different meaning apart from ultimate. And so when people use penultimate to mean ultimate, like he's the 
the very ultimate. The penultimate traveler or something, or some way of saying that he's the best example of something, the way you try to use for ultimate. It does not work. It no. makes absolutely no sense unless somebody's standing behind that guy in the line. You can't be the penultimate something. But what even is pen as a prefix? That's not even a prefix that we enter in our dictionaries. P-E-N, right? The pen in penultimate. No, because it's used so, so rarely. Hmm. As a prefix, it does not really have much function in the language. So no one, I think, unless you are taught or you go to your friendly dictionary, Mm merriamwebster.com, and you look up the word penultimate, you cannot be blamed for not understanding what penultimate means. Pen, uh, penultimate in Latin just meant almost. So almost last. Penultimate, almost last. Right. I think of penumbra. Isn't that like I a, think that's right. a completely dark shadow of the moon, but it's like when it's almost in total darkness or something like that. That makes right. good sense. But it doesn't really function as an yes. English prefix. Right. And it's interesting no. which prefixes people know and love and rely on and require things of. Mm. Those are the good prefixes. Right. <laughs> they are. <laughs> but one thing I think we should mention is how 180 is entered in the dictionary. It's entered spelled out with a hyphen. Whereas if you look up 360 in our dictionary, you enter the numerals. Part of that is a legacy of different editions and over time. But it is interesting that we do sometimes enter numerals, which I believe are alphabetized as you would say them. Even that, Right. 360 would be under the T's. Under the T's, the, after, the after three. Dictionary. Right. Yeah. So 180 would be in the O's. But in fact, the entry is there because it's spelled out frequently enough. So I did a 180, and frequently in published text, it's written out as words, a hyphenated mm-hmm rather than just the numerals. I think that's a sort of interesting data point. From a lexical standpoint, somebody at some point had to determine how to enter numerals <laughs> lexically into the dictionary. I feel like this conversation has taken a 527-degree turn. <laughs> Let us know what you think about Word Matters. Review us on Apple Podcasts. You can also visit us at nepm.org. And for the word of the day and all your general dictionary needs, visit merriam-webster.com. Our theme music is by Tobias Voigt. Artwork by Annie Jacobson. Word Matters is produced by Adam Maid and John Vosey. For Neil Servan, Amon Shea, and Peter Sokolowski, I'm Emily Brewster. Word Matters is produced by Merriam-Webster in collaboration with New England Public Media. <laughs>